Hey, this is Pastor Tommy, and I want to thank you for tuning in to the Crossbridge Brickle Weekly Podcast. Every week we provide online notes for our sermons that are available in the Bible app. If you want to listen and follow along with the notes, just text the word HI to our text-in number at 305-930-7006. This information is also provided for you in the description of this week's podcast. Included in this week's notes are prayer requests from last week's Connect Cards, as well as information about our current Christmas outreach with Operation Christmas Child. In this week's podcast, as the final sermon of our Judges series, we want to provide this disclaimer that in the chapter of Judges you are about to learn from contains moments of sexual assault and extreme violence. We want to be considerate of those who have personal experiences with these types of trauma, so please use discretion while listening to this podcast. If at any time you feel you need prayer or counseling to help you process through your pain, we recommend Wellspring Miami, who provide Christian mental health counselors all throughout Miami-Dade County. For more information, visit wellspringmiami.org, or you can email us at brickle at crossbridgemiami.com. Thank you for being a part of the Crossbridge community, and now here is Pastor Carter with the final week of our teaching series in the book of Judges. So short and sweet is how we're, uh, I was wanting to do it because Judges 19, the whole entire chapter is super long, so I didn't want to leave that whole thing in there. I want to ask you to do something before we get started, and this is really important this evening, uh, especially for those that are listening on the podcast. Tonight, we close our series in the book of Judges. So there's two, two, two requests here. One is that if you're in this room and you have not texted in to our text in number, the word hi, Text in because there's a lot of notes that are not added on the screen. And most importantly, at the end of the sermon, we're going to be reading a passage of Scripture together that is not found on the screen, and it is a certain version, and I want us to read it together. So if you text in the word hi to our text in number, you'll get that passage um, in the app, and you can connect with us and follow through that way. So we're closing our series, and what that means is we've arrived at the most horrific story possibly in the entire Bible. And so the second thing I was going to say is, here's the disclaimer. Uh, tonight is going to get real, like real bad, okay? So if you're listening on the podcast and you have children in the car, you need to stop the recording right now and then play it later, okay? That's the disclaimer. Everyone in the room is like, what is going to happen? Well, you got to stay with me, okay? So we're closing the series in Judges 19, and we've been going through the entire summer through this book. Just a little summer study, a light summer study, not too heavy. Uh, yeah, everyone that's been here is like, that couldn't be farther from the truth. But have you guys enjoyed this series, going through the book of Judges? Okay, we're never going to do this one again. We're a two-time church, so let's try again. Have you enjoyed Judges? Oh, no one, listen, I wanted to do that because no one has ever cheered for judges, ever, like, <laughs> ever, like, it's not a book you cheer for. We've been saying all throughout this book that there's a repeated cycle that gets worse and worse and worse as God's people turn away from him, they worship idols, and they rebel against following God and trusting in his word, and then they're oppressed by the very nations they look to for spiritual guidance, and then eventually, over time, they repent and they return to God, and they pray for rescue, and God comes to their aid. He is merciful and compassionate and faithful, and he brings a judge who will deliver them from their oppression. But last week, we saw that the cycle has been broken. No longer are the people of God turning back to God for rescue and repentance. They're completely okay with the way that they're living. They have 
taken in all of the cultural values and mixed them together and created this homemade religion. And they're okay with that, even though they're facing oppression and they're facing violence and they are suffering. And we saw last week the last judge who was Samson sacrifice himself as God used this extremely flawed character to deliver God's people. Now, if you're reading through the book of Judges and you arrive at Judges 16, which is where Samson dies, you think, okay, the book is over. He was the last judge, and now he's dead. But there's four more chapters. And the reason there's four more chapters is because the author has been taking 16 chapters to give you a bird's eye view into the life of Israel. He wants you to see their spiritual state. He wants you to see the way that they've turned from God, their oppression, this cycle of sin as it gets darker in sin and deeper in their rebellion from God throughout the course of history. But it's a bird's eye view that's laser focused on one individual at a time for the most part, the judges. But after verse chapter 16, when Samson dies, there's four chapters where the author is calling you to look under, to really be on the ground, to feel what it's like to exist in a culture, in a city, in a village, in an environment where everyone is just living life based upon what they deem is good where they have turned away from what God views as good and they are doing evil in the sight of the Lord, which is what's the repeated verse all throughout this book. And they are just doing what is right in their own eyes. And there is no king. And that's important. Hold on to that. It says here in the very beginning of Judges chapter 19 that in those days there was no king. And that's important. And so we pick up in Judges 19 with this story that is meant to cause you to feel what it's like to be in a culture and a city and environment where there is no king and where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And so we pick up looking at this man who is a Levite. Now, a Levite is a priest. They're of the tribe of Israel. They are one of the tribes of God's people, and Levites were the priests. And this man is not a typical priest. Now, in this story, no one has a name. So it's just the Levite. You're going to see an old man. There's all different types of people. So no one has a name because you are meant to identify with the characters in this story. You are meant to connect yourself to them. And in a moment, you're going to be like, wait a second. How am I supposed to relate with anyone in this story? But you're meant to because this shows you the spiritual state of Israel, what it was like to live in that type of world, in that type of environment. And you're supposed to align yourself of which character do you identify with. So the Levite is a priest, but he has a concubine. Now a concubine is not a wife. It's a second class wife. That's really a sex object. Okay. You're following me. Priest has a sex object. Who's his second class wife. Okay. Now you can kind of see what's happening. And no one thinks this is weird. This is just normal. This is how everyone lives. This is the culture. The priest maybe has a wife. We don't know. But then he's got another second-class wife who's a sex object who's a concubine. And the concubine cheats on the Levite. He's upset about it. He's broken up. And so they separate for a period of four months. She goes back to her father's house. He is in, we're in his village, at his house. And oh, after four months, he says, man, I want to get back with her. We don't know why. Maybe he just misses her. He cherishes the relationship and he wants to get reconnected. 
with his concubine, but also technically she's his property because they were second-class wives and they were owned by their master, by the man. But they've separated and he goes back to her father's house and he spends five days there and they begin to talk and he's like, listen, I want to, I want to get back with your daughter and, you know, technically she's my property, but I want you just like hand her back to me and let's have a conversation and they try to make amends and everything gets better as best as it can be in this type of environment where there are concubines and second-class citizens and property and priests with sex objects. This is the world, right? So they come back together and they reconcile or at least there's some willingness for her to get back with him and they leave. They're going to leave her father's house, and head back to Fram, which is the village, hill country, far distance away that he's from. And as they're traveling back, the sun is setting, and she says to him, listen, we can't travel on the road at night. It's not safe. There's robbers, there's thieves. It's, it's just not a safe place to be. We need to find somewhere to stay. So why don't we stay right in this nearby village called Jebus? He's thinking about it, the Levite. He's like, listen, we can't stop there. Because Jebus is not run by Israel. It's not an Israelite city. It's run by Canaanites. And I don't know if we're going to be safe there. It's probably not the best city to stay in. So let's just go past Jebus and stop in the town of Gibeah. Gibeah is, will be safe because it's run by Israel. The tribe of Benjamin ran this town. That was their town. And so he's imagining that Gibeah is the safest place to stop because he's an Israelite. He's a Levite from the tribe of Levite. And this town will welcome him in and his concubine because a huge cultural value for Israel was hospitality. So if a stranger or foreigner comes into your town, you welcome them in, you feed them, you take care of them. It's a really important cultural value, especially if the stranger or the foreigner is an Israelite. So Gibeah is the place to go. So they walk a little bit more. The sun is setting, and they get to Gibeah. And they begin to walk around, you know, expecting to see people in the streets coming in from work and striking up a conversation. Where are you from? Oh, you want to stay with us? No, stay with us. Oh, I don't know. Who has the better food? You know, whoever has that, that's where we're going to go. Who's got the better wine? We're going to go there. But they arrive in Gibeah, and no one is there. People are there, but no one's talking to them. They don't find any hospitality. So automatically there's a shock. Like, what's going on in this town? People are really cold. This is not a normal Israelite town. And so they go to the middle of the town in the center square where there would be a market during the day and a lot of activity. And it's empty. And they're sitting there and just probably talking to themselves like, man, I mean, there's nothing here. Where are we going to go? Where are we going to sleep? And as they're sitting there contemplating that, maybe they're discussing, well, let's just sleep here in the square. I guess it's the best place. But then they look in the distance and they see an old man. And this old man is walking towards them. He's coming in from the fields. He's been working throughout the day. And he walks up to them and calls them over and they meet. And he says, hey, where are you from? And where are you going? They're probably like, finally, <laughs> someone's going to talk to us in this town. And he said, well, I'm a Levite, and, and this is my concubine, and we are going 
back home to the hill country of Ephraim. The sun was setting and we needed somewhere to stay, but we came here and there's like no hospitality in this town if you didn't know. So we're just going to sleep in the square. But listen, if you can take us in, that'd be amazing. We have food, we have wine, we can pay. Like we're not trying to like freeload here. We just need a place to stay. And he says, listen, you can come with me, the old man, but do not stay in the square and do not sleep in the square. This is like in the horror movie where you're like, wait, why do you say that? Like, what's, what's about the square? Because this is Israel's horror story, okay? That's what's taking place here. So they're like, okay, um, yeah, we're going to go to your house. We're not going to stay in the square, no problem. So they go back to the old man's house, and things are going really, really well. They have food, and they have wine, and they're drinking, and they're having a good time. And it says that they're merry. Like, this is like, good thing we stopped in Gibeah. This place is awesome. This old dude is so cool. We're just going to hang out here. We're going to sleep over at his house. And all of a sudden, as the night is drawing to a close, they hear a knock at the door. And they're like, you know, who's like knocking at the door at this time? Maybe this guy's like super hospitable. He's got other friends coming over. We're going to like turn up the party to the next level. Like, what's going on here? But the old man's face is something's wrong. So they're walking to see, well, what's going to happen? And I imagine the old man walks to the door, and he's got one of those, like, rectangle cutouts, you know, where you're like, hello, you know, like, who is that? So he opens his little rectangle cutout, and he's like, hello, and there's a, a band of men outside. And if you were wondering what type of men these are, the scripture tells us they are worthless fellows. Like, if you ever get called a worthless fellow, that's like, that's way bad. Like, that's the bottom of the basement. Like, a, a worthless fellow. So it's a band of worthless fellows knocking at the door, and he knows that there's an issue. And here's what they say. We know that there's a stranger in your house, a man. We've seen him. We saw him in the square. We followed him to your house. And we know he's in there. And you need to hand him over to us so we can rape him all night long. You're like, whoa, that's where the story's going? So the old man is sitting there and he says, listen, (laughs) they're under my protection. I'm a man of hospitality and I'm not gonna hand over this stranger who's in my house to you. You're like, yeah, come on, old guy. Keep it going, man. He's like standing up, but then he says this. I'm not going to give him to you, but I'll give you my daughter, who's a virgin, and I'll give you his concubine. And he says, you can violate them. Says the men push open the door, and they grab the concubine. They take her away, and he closes the door. And what we presume happened is that they just went to sleep. The Levite, the old man, none of them step up, none of them try to intervene, none of them try to stop the situation. They just go to bed, and the worthless fellows take the concubine, and they rape her all night until the sun rises. And when the sun rises, they let her go, and she slowly tries to make her way back, crawling, stumbling, all the way back to the old man's house. And right before the door, it says that she collapses on the ground with her hand on the threshold of the door. And the sun is rising now, and so the light is peering into 
this man's house and the Levite wakes up and the first thing on his mind is like, I need to pack up. I need to get out of here. This town is not as safe as I thought it was going to be. So he packs everything up, presumably ready to leave without the concubine, his wife. And he opens the door and he sees her on the ground. And if you already didn't like him, you're going to hate him more because he looks at her on the ground and he says, get up, let's go. Heartless. She doesn't respond. He says, get up, like we got to go. And he bends down to realize she's dead. I told you it was going to get bad. It's Israel's horror story. You see, there's a, a very clear connection into, in this story to a story that happened centuries before in a town called Sodom and Gomorrah. There's parallels between these stories. If you read that story, you'll notice that there are some parallels happening. And the reason that these parallels are made obvious is because you are to understand that the condition of the hearts of God's people is so far gone that they've become like those of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah being the town and the city known for its evil and its vile acts, the most horrific and horrendous city that's ever existed. We even use it as a phrase like, don't go there, places like Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet God's people, because there's no king and they do what is right in their own eyes, they have become like Sodom. They have become no better than the pagan nations that would value and promote orgies as a way of worship. In fact, many of the orgies would would get out of hand because there would be abuse and there would be rape and there would be all these type of things, but it was seen actually as an act of worship to these pagan gods and God's people have so absorbed the culture and they've so mixed everything around that they have adopted these practices and even gone further to promoting and allowing bands of men to walk around and rape whoever they want. This is how far they have gone. This is how dark their sin has become, how deep the rebellion away from God and away from his word has become, that this is the reality. They are no better than the pagan nations. It would not have been any safer for them to stop in Jebus than for them to stay in Gibeah. It doesn't matter whether they're Canaanites or they're Israelites. The whole place is fallen apart. And you're to read this story, and you're to feel exactly as you're feeling right now, which is upset and repulsed, because this is a real story. And the Levite, this man who is just this confused character, who is a coward, who is heartless, but you're like, he did try to originally reconcile with this woman who cheated on him, and he feels upset and repulsed too. He can't believe what's happened. And so he takes her and he puts her body on the donkey that he is using to take his cargo and his suitcases back to his house. And he leaves Gibeah and he heads back home. And when he gets home, he takes her body and he gets a knife and he cuts it up into 12 pieces. And he wraps up the 12 pieces of her body 
and he sends them out via messengers to each of the tribes of Israel. You see, the reason he's doing this is because he's so repulsed and he's so upset of, as what has become of God's people, particularly at this town of Gibeah with the Benjamites, that he wants justice. He wants judgment to be poured upon their head for their crimes. And so he sends out her body parts so that everyone in Israel will feel as repulsed and as upset as he feels. And it's successful because the story begins to spread all throughout Israel through the different towns and cities and tribes and the leaders of these tribes open up this package as they've heard the story of what took place in Gibeah and they see a body part. And they're so angered at what has taken place that they band together and there's a civil war that breaks out between God's people. All of the tribes come together to fight against the Benjamites. They kill all the men of Benjamin. And then later that leads to genocide. It has gotten out of control. Justice was served and judgment was poured down upon the Benjamites, but at what expense? How has it come to this point? How could this have happened? And this is exactly how Judges 19 ends. Verse 30 says this of Judges chapter 19. Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it. Take counsel and speak. This is how they end with the story as the body parts of this woman are sent out and as everyone is contemplating what took place in Gibeah with the Levite and the concubine and the old man and this horrible story of these Benjamite worthless fellows raping her to death and this becoming not uncommon in Israel among God's people. And the response is, how did we get here? How could this have happened? We need to consider it, which certainly they considered it. As they looked at the body parts that are spread out across all the tribes. And then they took counsel. I'm sure the Levites were very busy. All the priests, they had meetings booked up. All the counselors, they were raising their prices because they had meetings all day long as everyone is trying to take some type of counsel and comfort. How do we think about this? How do we process this? What do we do? Then it says, speak and speak. They did. They spoke truth that these Benjamites deserve justice and they band together to pour out judgment upon them for their crimes. Maybe you're thinking this, What in the world do I take from this story besides like a little bit of throwing up in my mouth? (laughs) Like what what do we do? Many of you have like, I've never heard this preached, didn't even know it was in the Bible. What do I take from this? The same exact thing that Israel took. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. See, consider first that these people in the book of Judges, if you are a person of faith, are your spiritual ancestors. And you, to some extent, are like them. You're like, wait, (laughs) you lost me there, okay? I'm not like them at all. 
But consider the three types of people in this story, because the truth is, every one of us in this room is like one of the three people. We identify with one of the three characters in this story. There are the Benjamites, who are externally evil. You can see their evil in their life. There is the Levite, who is externally ambiguous in regards to how he lives. He's good and bad, different moments at different times. And then there is the old man, who is externally good, except for that one moment. These are the three people. So I'm going to ask you to consider which of these three you identify with. The first, the Benjamites. Nobody here wants to say, that's me. Yep, I identify with the Benjamites. (laughs) You see, none of us would claim that. None of us would say, yes, I am, I'm externally evil, and uh, I identify with the Benjamites. But many of us, if we take a moment and really analyze our heart, we do feel a sense of connection with them. We work really hard to showcase our good and to mask the crimes and the sin and the thoughts and the actions that we have perpetuated in the past. But when we think about what we've done in the past, what we've thought in the past, the crimes and the sin that we've committed in the past, it's not unlike what the Benjamites did. It's different, certainly. But we may think about the people that we have caused deep pain. People that the way that we treated them, the things that we said to them, the way that we acted towards them felt like death to them to the point that where they collapsed on the ground. And we carry that, and you feel that, and that shame and that guilt of the way that you acted and the thing that you did haunts you. And so you compartmentalize, and you hide it away so that nobody sees it. And the problem is, is that because it's there, and you don't deal with it, and you don't consider it, you live in fear of judgment. You are constantly fearful that people will find out who you really are and what you've really done and what you're capable of, and they will judge you, and they will ostracize themselves for you. They will band together, and they will pour out judgment upon you because of who you are and what you've done. And it doesn't only affect your relationships with others as you hide away these parts of your life because you're fearful of people really knowing you because they're going to judge you for who you are and what you've done and what you're capable of doing, but you also are fearful of God's judgment. Your faith is really, really fragile because you know you deserve judgment and you're fearful at any moment God is going to pour it out upon you. And sometimes when you're going through a difficult time, you feel like, yep, it's God's judgment on me for what I've done, what I'm still doing. When you consider it, you don't want to raise your hand, but you do identify with the Benjamites. Some of you here identify with the Levite. You're externally ambiguous in the way that people see you. People see the good and the bad in your life. Maybe some people that see you at work, they see the bad, and then they see you at church, they see the good. They see you on Friday night, they see you in community group. They see you in all these different arenas where you're making good decisions and you're making bad decisions. And you're always trying to balance that, and it's difficult because your motivation for living is about self, 
preservation. You're just trying to preserve what you can. And though you may not have committed the horrific acts that the Benjamites committed, and you don't really look at your life and say, yeah, here are all the things that, I'm done, that I've done that are just absolutely horrible. You don't have those, but you know that you're a mix of good and bad. But when you really analyze the way that you've lived, you recognize that oftentimes your passivity and your inaction has led to evil perpetuated on other people. As a Levite sits there as a coward, unwilling to step up and to defend this woman that he certainly has love for, He's passive. He sits back, and his inaction and his passivity leads to evil being perpetuated upon her. And if you consider your life, you think, and there are a lot of times where I'm passive and I sit back because I'm so focused on preserving myself and my life and my dreams and my desires and my success that I allow evil to be perpetuated on other people around me in my life and my city because I'm so focused on myself. And if that is you, and you consider that that is where you identify, you probably live a life seeking to defend your goodness. You're always trying to defend how good you are. You're always trying to show people that you're better than people think. You're always trying to tell people, look what I've done, look what I can do, look what I did. And you bring that to God too, trying to prove yourself to God. God, you see, I went to church three times this month. (laughs) and I read my Bible four times. You're always trying to prove yourself to God, like, God, look at me. Look at the way I'm serving. Look what I'm giving. Look what I'm doing. Yeah, 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 we have all these things over here that I don't want anybody to see, but look what I'm doing, God. Trying to prove yourself to God and to others, defend your goodness, because your life is about self-preservation. And maybe you identify with the old man. You are the person that is good, and everyone sees it. You love people. You like to help people. You're hospitable. You look to guide people away from evil and destruction. You, you tell people all the time, don't go to the square. Like, don't go there. You genuinely love and care for people. And here's what people tell you a lot. You're such a good person how did you become such a good person? You're like, I don't know. You know I just... But you hear that from other people in the office, your friends, your family, and you cherish it. And it's good to want to be a good person. It's not like, no, no, no. I love being evil. Like, you don't want to do that. Like, it's good to be good. But you cherish it so much, your identity of being recognized as a good person, that you are willing to trade and offer things up that are precious to you to protect your reputation. You see, the old man was a good person, hospitable and caring, and he guides them away. He's the only person in the town, but he's so consumed with his reputation as being hospitable and good that when these men come to his door, He is willing to offer his daughter to protect his reputation as a hospitable neighbor. And as you consider your life, you may think that there are things that are precious that I sacrifice and offer up to protect my reputation. Maybe you offer up your convictions to protect your reputation as open-minded, 
Maybe you offer up your purity to protect your love for your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Maybe you offer up your family and your friends to protect your identity as being successful. Maybe you offer up your faith to fit in in certain crowds because you so want people just to see that you're good and that you fit in, you're well-liked, that you offer up precious things to maintain that. And if that's true of you, here's probably also what's true of you, is that you struggle with feeling your faith. You may believe in Jesus. You may come to worship. You may be consistent in worship. You may raise your hands at times. You may read your Bible. You may pray, but you struggle with feeling your faith. If someone asks you, you may say, I'm in a dry season in my faith. I'm really not feeling God. I'm feeling the distance between God. And the reason that you feel that way is because God and your faith and worship is not the most precious thing to you. Your reputation is. And so there's a disconnect at times when you worship. There's a disconnect between your faith. There's a disconnect between other people of faith because you are so focused on being identified as good that you are unwilling to be open and honest about your own brokenness because you think it will destroy your reputation. So when you're with friends, you're in a small group, you're in a community group, you're at a Bible study, your prayer request is always surface level. It's always just enough to feel like you need prayer, but not enough that anyone thinks that anything is truly wrong with you. You hide your brokenness away so that people see you as good. A good Christian, a good person, a good coworker, a good boyfriend, a good girlfriend, a good spouse. Consider, are you more like a Benjamite or a Levite or the old man? Regardless of who you identify with, here is the truth. You all, including myself, are evil. We're all evil. You're like, wait a second, what? Yeah, we are all evil. Like really evil. We're more evil than we give ourselves credit for. We are worse off than we think. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3. It's a comfort to you. Here's how you take, here's what you take counsel in. No one is righteous. No, not one, Okay. No one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, Uh uh-oh, worthless fellows, remember that? No one does, does good, not even one. As you consider, you're to take counsel in the reality that you are worse off than you think. You're more evil than you give yourself credit for. You're not good, you're not righteous, you are uh, worthless, like, this is a real downer sermon. Way to close the series on a high note. But you haven't heard the good news. You see, you have to consider who you are. You have to take counsel in the reality of your own brokenness and your own sin and your own shame and your own guilt to really receive what you're going to read next in Romans chapter 3. The Apostle Paul reminds us of this. He says, take counsel in that for there is no distinction... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Benjamites, Levites, old men, no matter what you consider yourself to be, no matter who you recognize and identify yourself with, you all fall short of the glory of God. And all of us are justified by grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Jesus, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. You are evil and I am evil, but we are loved. That's the good news. We all deserve judgment, but we're forgiven and accepted. You see, as we consider who we are, the gospel comes in and says, let me counsel you on who God is. Though you may identify as a Benjamite or a Levite or the old man, and all of us here are broken, we fall short of God's glory. Through faith in Christ, we receive the gift of grace, and you are forgiven, and you are loved. That's the gospel. That's the good news delivered to you. And when you receive this, and when you take counsel in the reality that that is who you are, something can take place in your life. You can receive this good news if you're a Benjamite. If you identify as a person that's externally evil and you're always in fear of God's judgment upon you and the judgment of other people, you can receive the reality that you are loved and forgiven by the grace of God in Christ, that there is no condemnation in Christ. It doesn't matter what you've done or what you will do. You are forgiven and loved. There is no judgment that God is waiting just to throw upon you when you make a mistake. He is actually for you, not against you. You're free, so receive that. Let your guilt and your shame go because there's no room for that in the gospel. And if you identify as a Levite, and you're always trying to defend your goodness, you're always trying to be the hero, you're always trying to show everybody and prove to everybody, including God, how good you are and what you're capable of, rest in the reality that Jesus was the hero for you. You don't have to prove yourself to other people. You don't have to prove yourself to God. You can't. That's why God gives grace as a gift. You can't earn it. You can't prove yourself to receive it. And if you are like the old man, you cherish your label as being good, and you feel oftentimes that your faith is dry, and you're just not feeling that connection, hit reset. Hit reset in the reality that you are, in fact, broken, and it's okay to recognize that. It's okay to say, I am broken. I do have failures and mistakes in my life, and I'm going to open that up to other people, and I'm going to open that up in my relationship with God, and actually there I'll find joy. I don't have to protect my reputation. I don't have to offer things up that are precious to me to make myself feel safe because other people see me as good. I can just be broken before God and before others. You see, when you consider who you identify with and you take counsel in the gospel, the last step is to speak. Speak what? Speak the truth of God over yourself. You see, I told you to remember that it said at the very beginning of Judges chapter 19 that in those days there was no king. And because there was no king, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But if you've been following through the book of Judges, God has told his people time and time again, you don't need a king because I am your king. I am to be the king of your heart. I'm to be the king of your life. I am to guide and to lead you as your king to a life of flourishing and satisfaction and joy. But in Judges 19, we know that the people of God have turned so far away from God that there is no king. God is certainly not the king of their heart. 
and you see what happens. You see, we need to remember that when you turn your eyes away from God and he's not the king of your heart and he's not the king of your life, you experience disaster and disappointment and dysfunction when you begin to live your life doing what is right in your own eyes. But the gospel reminds you to speak the truth of God over your life and remind yourself that though you are broken, you are loved through Christ. And he is to be the king in your life that you can wake up and live for. Don't live for what's right in your eyes. Live for what is right in God's eyes because there is joy and satisfaction and flourishing. So I want to close with reading an excerpt from uh, Romans chapter 6. So if you text it in, you can pull it up. It should be at the very end of the sermon notes. Five verses. It's in the message version. And I love just how real and honest this version puts this text. Hope you receive this. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 6, says this. Could it be any clearer? Our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ. A decisive end to that sin-miserable life, no longer at sin's every beck and call. What we believe is this. If we get included in Christ's sin-conquering death, we also get included in his life-saving resurrection. We know that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was a signal of the end of death as the end. Never again will death have the last word. When Jesus died, he took sin down with him, but alive he brings God down to us. From now on, think of it this way. Sin speaks a dead language that means nothing to you. God speaks your mother tongue, and you hang on every word. You are dead to sin and alive to God. That's what Jesus did. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you that we are dead to sin. Dead to sin, but alive to you, God. Or we confess that we are broken. We are desperate for you, God. We are in need of a savior. We are in need of rescue. All of us in here identify either as a Benjamite, as a Levite, or as the old man. We have motivators in our life, whether it's fear of judgment or the need to defend our own goodness or the cherishing of a reputation that steers us away from you and towards ourself, and that brings disappointment and destruction and hurt and pain. And God, yet we repeat the cycle. I pray, God, that you would use this series, that you would use your word to wake us up to the reality of the joy of life with you, that there is flourishing and joy and satisfaction and hope and peace, and everything we desire is found in living for you as we look to you. Would sin be a dead language to us? But would we be alive to you, God, and to your word? as it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.